Hello and welcome to See Me Serious Science, the podcast where we chat to people of a scientific persuasion about their life, their work, and their passion, all over a couple of beers or coffee or, or water. Zooms. Hi, I'm Stilly. <laughs> and I'm Lou. And we're two PhD students at the CIMI Lab, which is a collaborative lab which utilizes the merger of multiple disciplines to study the interaction between cells, materials, and proteins, and all of this to gain a fundamental insight into engineering cell behavior. Today's guests work at the interface between clinical psychology and neuroscience with an aim to develop novel psychological and pharmacological treatments or their combination for addiction, anxiety, depression, and other trauma-related disorders in collaboration with the Sir Bobby Charlton Foundation or SBCF. For those who do not know the SBCF, it is an organization which works with civilian populations that have been impacted by conflict. Their approach to issues is unique, as they involve experts from different fields to solve problems. For example, our lab is also involved with SPCF. We are bioengineers, so we solve problems which are physical. However, our guests today are psychologists and neuroscientists, so they tackle more the mental side of things, the mind side of things. So a very warm welcome to Professor Sanjeev Kambaj and PhD researcher Vanessa Hennessy. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for inviting us. Yes. Yeah. How are you doing? Vanessa? <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is going to be fun. Uh, yes, uh, we're um, doing very well, thank you. Um, it's nice and sunny down here in London, so that makes a nice, uh, nice change for the last few days. And you, Sanjeev? Yeah, pretty good. I mean, it's nice and sunny here in Eastbourne as well. Um, I'm not in London, but uh, it's, uh, yeah, nice anyway. Sounds good. I'm always very, very jealous of uh, southern weather. So it's very different than what we get up <laughs> here in Glasgow. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really funny because like when people told me I was going to go to Scotland, obviously the weather is bad. But, but then like I always thought of the UK as like a bad weather kind of country. But the, Lon- the London weather is actually so good compared to Glasgow weather. <laughs> so good. Like, so much better. I think a big thing to mention is that in the midst of a global pandemic, your group and Vanessa was able to raise a lot of money for the Sir Bobby Charlton Foundation in its bid to help um, countries affected by COVID and by conflict. Uh, we were wondering, so how do you even get this all together during a uh, during a pandemic, during lockdown? <laughs> well, I was very lucky to be helped by um, my daughter and my father, who um, were really um, excited to help. And I think also inspired in a way by the collaboration between um, our teams in the sense that we are looking at both the, the mind and the body. And exercise is something that um, can help both. And um, the Sir Bobby Charlton Foundation were doing this uh, home champions where they were trying to get people to do various different activities every day. And uh, my daughter's wanted to do a half marathon for a a long time. And my father has been quite ill and he's recently started doing um, static bike exercises every day. So we thought if we set our own personal challenges, but did it as a team together, it would be a good thing to do when you're in isolation. It was nice to have a sort of team Thing where we do our own personal little sort of um, activities to train but then we were aiming for the for one thing and so 
that was actually really it was really fun to do it was really fun to do. we were very fortunate that people just got involved so it was we were very lucky so yes it was, it was incredible uh, are we allowed to mention that you raised shy of five thousand pounds with a charity which is just yeah it's incredible <laughs> I, know, I don't quite know how really it was just I just sent loads of emails actually my mother was brilliant because I I'm not very good at asking people for money. It's not one of my strengths. But she she said, oh, I haven't done any fundraising for ages. And she sort of got really into it and sort of badgered all of her friends. And uh, so that was really, really helpful. So, yeah. I also intended to raise um, some money um, by doing a physical activity, but um, I chipped a tooth trying to do a, <laughs> trying to do a, trying to do a press up. And um, uh, just from the strain of it. And so I uh, gave up. Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry. That's okay. One thing that happened after lockdown, my first day back in the lab, all I went in, I went in, I turned on a 3D printer and I walked home and I had muscle ache in my legs for two days afterwards from the like, oh sheer God. inactivity. On our side, there were actually some really, some fundraisers as well. Like one of the funniest one was, the, was that uh, we got Manuel, our uh, principal investigator, to shave his head for charity, oh, wow. which was... Uh, which was awesome. He didn't do it on camera, despite us really asking <laughs> yeah. for it. But uh, oh. he did shave his head. Yeah, we could do it like a paid stream. We could have people like yeah. pay money to choose which bit he shaves next. I thought, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. That would have been that would have been fantastic. But you're doing some wonderful things. You're walking all the way from Glasgow to uh, Jordan oh, in yeah. stages. Sounds really exciting. Wow. I don't know where we are right now, actually. I know it, it only took us about two weeks to get to London or a week to get to London from Glasgow. I think one of the last tweets was Venice, I think. Oh. Uh, so who's swimming? Who's doing the swimming leg? <laughs> <laughs> or are you walking all the way around? <laughs> I think Matt Dalby is the big swimmer in the group. So I bet he's doing all the swimming in Venice. He'll do the channel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought that was a really great idea. I hope we could talk more about your work because your work is really, really exciting. <laughs> <laughs> but I figured for the, the listener's sake, we maybe start off with a bit more of the basic stuff. So I know in your uh, UCL bio, you talk about how you sort of work at the crossroads of clinical psychology and neuroscience. Um, and I was wondering, so our lab works similarly at the, the merger of engineering and biology. And I was wondering, you know, kind of what working at that, that merger lets you do and what the difference between the two fields is? Yes, we we don't do um, we don't really look at se- at the cellular level. We look at the whole organism level, but at the same time, we look at how drugs uh, that affect mood and brain can influence subsequent uh, mindsets, but also then behaviors. Mostly in, in my research, anyway, looking at um, memory and how just using drugs at critical time points in memory formation can have quite significant impacts on how these memories then affect people and also then affect even your behaviors. We also, we're sort of in between clinical application where people are actually doing it in clinical trials and actually, as I said, at the test tube level. And so this this is quite exciting because you sort of are in the middle, but at the same time, it has made um, some things like funding difficult because we kind of fall between <laughs> between those two stools. But yes, it's, it is very exciting to be able, because you get the whole picture. You sort of see it reading the research all about the, the molecular level while you're not actually doing it yourself. You have an element of understanding about that to know how the drugs might, the mechanisms the drugs might be working on. 
And then, of course, you also get to see how that how it will affect somebody, hopefully in a clinical situation. Ultimately, what if we can make sure we get it to uh, to that point? In behavioural science, we often use animal models to try and understand complex behaviours where you modify either genetically or through training uh, an animal's behaviour and then investigate the effects of some sort of treatment, some manipulation on that behaviour. So we try and model aspects of psychological disorder in humans and then investigate the effects of drugs that affect memory, as Vanessa was saying, on symptom formation. So I guess, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting interface to work at because it raises all kinds of issues around how accurate your models are, um, how well you can model a psychopathological behavior in an ethical way without harming people. You have to be very careful in how we screen people and make sure that they don't, uh, they're not in a, a, an at-risk group for um, suffering sort of long, long-term or, or, or any kind of severe consequences of the kinds of stressors that we use. Ah. For example, in engineering or biology, you have certain models which you can translate from like a cellular kind of like setting to something that you can maybe generalize as a first step to that it could potentially be like a, a stepping point to go into like a, a kind of like a second phase trial sort of thing like as a okay it works on the cellular level now i can try it on something else i feel like something like that is a lot harder to set up with neuroscience like how much trauma should you cause we have developed this protocol is that we ask people to watch an extremely distressing film um, that Mm -hmm. generates a stress response and we take saliva samples um, at baseline and then immediately after the um, stressful film and then we give them drug that we're using as a potential intervention. Um, if we're think, looking at it as a preventative um, measure, which is the focus of my work at the moment, then that would be immediately after the um, stressful film. And then we take subsequent saliva samples over the subsequent hours so we can see how the drug is moderating the stress response compared to the placebo group. So we're looking... We're looking at it more as in a, at a slightly higher level than the than the cellular response. It's more at a I suppose it's a lower systems level response, the stress systems response. And we look at cortisol response, adre- um, adrenaline response measured by salivary amylase, and um, and then a range of sex hormones because we're interested in how uh, the the sexes differ on their their stress response. So that's kind of the the. Possibly, I'd consider that's the lowest level of our of our model in terms of, of mechanisms. Although we are also in our next study looking at EEG recordings, so we'll be able to look at how um, uh, oscillate, uh, neural oscillations change in response to maybe focusing on certain points of the film, or in relation to how the brain is recovering uh, subsequent to the to the stressor. We also look at uh, skin conductance levels, so that's a, a sort of uh, again, looking at arousal levels and in, in some measures, you can see whether or not there's more parasympathetic over uh, sympathetic activity. So and heart rate measures, because heart rate measures indicates um, how resilient or otherwise you might be to developing these intrusive memories, which are the our outcome measure is how many of these spontaneous uh, memories that people get that aren't deliberate. They don't deliberately recall them cues in the environment just spontaneously create them and they're a key feature of, of PTSD so 
we model PTSD not on its, all of its symptoms, but we focus on the core symptom, which is these intrusive memories. So we measure how many of these and how distressed people are by them and how vivid they are of the film. So what they get immediately afterwards so we can we can see if there's any acute effects of the interventions we're doing. And then over a period of a week afterwards to see whether or not compared to the placebo group, people have fewer or they're less distressing or they're less vivid. So it's um, it's a simplified version of the real world, I suppose. Um, and obviously the simulated trauma is not going to be at the level of a real life trauma, because, again, as you say, that would be that would be unethical. But this tr- this trauma film has been used quite um, a number of mm-hmm. times in, in our field and it quite reliably generates these intrusive memories, but they fade over the period of four, five days. And as, as Sanju says, we're very careful on screening, not just for the psychological harm that it could do to some people, but also obviously if we're giving people psychopharmacological drugs, then we have to make sure that there's no risk for any pre-existing physical condition they may have as well. We also make it incredibly clear what we are going to be asking people to do. We don't just spring on a the film. We, <laughs> we, we're very clear what they're going to I mean, not obviously which film, but we're very clear the level that it's going to be at. We don't take people who are phobic of blood or, you know, we, we right. really do try and make sure that everyone yeah. is fully informed as to what they're going to be asked to, uh, asked to do. Is um, this a film that's specifically made for research or is this something, is this like Saw 5 that we could see in the like, movie theaters? We've modified a film that, that's available widely in a way that makes it maximally sort of effective for, for our purpose. Yeah. Right, right. Yes, but it is a film that was on general release, so it, it's been you know it's been certified that it could be shown in in the cinema. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not something that you know is beyond what would be acceptable to show. Mm-hmm. But yes, Sanji's right. It's like it's been slightly cut mm-hmm. to maximise the moments that I wouldn't be watching <laughs> for a Saturday <laughs> evening at the cinema. <laughs> but um, yeah. Have either of you seen the full film or you're a fan of the full, full film that you've cut pieces from? I have seen the full, obviously, the film that we show them. All right. But it's not really my my sort of film. Although I, there is someone in our office who I was sort of talking about the film to and she said, oh, yeah, I've seen that for fun. And I was oh, okay, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, and I think it is also used quite a lot in film studies because it's, it's a sort of quite a... Um, interesting film from the way it's shot apparently mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. oh that's super interesting i was wondering uh like when you for example show this to subjects and uh, so sorry to um yeah uh, do you call them subjects i don't know <laughs> At, uh, like volunteers um, or participants. Uh, volunteers yeah. yeah sorry volunteers no, 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 that's fine <laughs> I reckon there is going to be people that might be a little bit more desensitized to it or like some people that have like a higher threshold. Is there such a thing as a trauma threshold? How intense does a trauma, a traumatic experience have to be to to cause actual issues? How do you normalize, I guess, for different thresholds of trauma in between your, your um, participants or volunteers? Can I ask an additional question? Is that just resilience? Is resilience what you would call a, a higher threshold or things like that? Do you want me? Yeah, please. Um, mm-hmm. Well, this is actually one of the things that we are um, interested in. I mean, mm-hmm. in terms of normalising, we check that people haven't seen this film before and we um, have as large a numbers of participants as possible to 
try to average for that. But in terms of what is a stressful event, that is really a very individual thing, but it's also something we're really interested in because not everybody who is, experiences the same stressful event will have the same psychological outcome. So you're right, there's sort of vulnerability and resilience to stress. And that is, seems to be a, quite a complicated um, interaction of a number of factors, you know, even to the point where different traumas have a different risk rate and whether or not you've had previous history of sort of trauma or chronic stress, age, age um, points in your lifespan, mm-hmm. even within the same individual. And then something that uh, sometimes you've done quite a bit of work on is, is sex hormone levels. So women obviously have a much greater fluctuation in their sex hormone levels through the, their menstrual cycle. So uh, even within the same individual, they'll be more or less vulnerable at different points, depending on the ratio of, of the sex hormone. So there isn't really a, at this point, you will get trouble, mm. even within the same person. Um, but that is one of the most in- difficult but intriguing parts of what we're trying to do is to unpick this so that we can deliver the right treatment to the right people. Because not everyone mm. will need treatment and not everyone will respond to the same treatment mm. positively. So because of the way this is going to work, it's going to be have to done quite quickly after a trauma. We that they're the kind of things we really need to know because we won't be a trial and error like you do with many drug situations. You know, from a clinical psychological perspective is that um, what people find traumatic varies enormously from individual to individual. So like Vanessa was saying that, you know, the same person, well, two people experience the same traumatic event, but respond to it very differently. And that's going to depend on so many different factors, apart from the biological ones. It'll be to do with their upbringing, their their sort of attachments, their social support, existing social support and so on. And the main thing that really determines whether someone experiences a trauma is the kind of meaning that they attribute to the event and the meaning that they attribute to their symptoms does it mean that because i'm having these intrusive memories or these flashbacks does that mean i'm going mad that kind of thing those are the kinds of things that are really important in determining individual differences in vulnerability to ptsd so vulnerability and resilience they're kind of the flip side of the same idea really yeah so you know most of us actually you know, depending on country and and the kind of prevailing situation in a, in a country in terms of sort of conflict and things like that, generally across countries, though, um, about eighty to ninety percent of people would, in their lifetimes, experience an event that would be defined in terms of the American Psychiatric Association, for example, their definition of a traumatic event, something that would cause PTSD. About 80%, 80-90% of people will experience something like that in their lifetimes, but only only a small proportion of those people will go on to develop PTSD or, or longer-term psychological problems. So, yeah, as Vanessa was saying, it's, it's really, you know, apart from determining the kinds of treatments that might be helpful for this type of difficulty, it's, it's, really, it's really important for us to be able to understand who might be vulnerable in the first place. I know you talked about the the definition of a trauma. And so recently, obviously, as a planet, we've gone through a global pandemic and a lot of us have been through a lockdown. Would you describe some of the things that we've probably experienced as a a general population as trauma? 
or that, that, that there was trauma in lockdown? It becomes very complicated because when we talk about uh, trauma and PTSD or acute stress disorder, which often precedes PTSD, we're usually talking about an event or a small series of events that culminate in a, a psychological disorder. A situation like COVID, it's not really an event. I mean, there will be events within it for some people who get who get ill, for example, or who have to go into hospital or have a loved one who is very ill. Those are events, aren't they? But but for most of us, the stress of COVID doesn't really qualify as an event. It's an ongoing kind of stressor. And and the kind of way that you would handle that psychologically or or perhaps pharmacologically would be would be quite different to how you would deal with an event based disorder like PTSD. I guess as a brain, as you develop those memories, there's also a different way of developing those memories. You wouldn't have potentially flashbacks of an event. It's just a general feeling of high stress and, and upset. I suppose it might be possible that the heightened level of chronic stress might mean that any subsequent single event might lead to an increased risk of a stress, some sort of stress related. And certainly for first responders and uh, people, you know, doctors in hospitals and things there is possibly a higher mm. incidence of PTSD at the moment than there might have been because they don't usually deal with these things on so you're talking about um, the family of stress disorders and I realize that in a lot of your your project titles or in the descriptions of what you do You've grouped together anxiety, depression, PTSD, and substance addiction. And I was wondering if there was a, a sort of innate, maybe cellular or clinical similarity between these that lets you group them together, or if it's how they're presented. They're, in one way or another, all disorders of memory, or, or maybe uh, disorders of forgetting. So in the case of PTSD, there's an impairment in forgetting. And in similarly with addictions, the memories that form between people's drug use and environmental cues around drug use, those happen to become very, very strongly encoded in the brain and again aren't easily erased or forgotten. So there's that kind of commonality, I think, that runs through the disorders that we're interested in. Yeah, and also it does seem um, interestingly that some of the drugs that work for anxiety and stress-related problems are also showing great promise with addiction disorders and also with depression. Mm. You know, there, there may be some commonality in mechanism as well as in terms of sort of the more mm. general memory element as well. And then now we're talking about drugs a little bit. Uh, one of the, the really interesting uh, parts of research or like research uh, topics you tackle is actually ketamine and memory reconsolidation. Could you maybe briefly describe first what uh, memory reconsolidation is? When we're trying to prevent the development of uh, an, a maladaptive memory, we are targeting the memory before it has been securely stored. So memories don't just happen instantaneously. It requires protein synthesis, synaptic changes, and this takes time. So there's a period of around, well, certainly sort of like six hours, the first bit, which where we call it consolidation, where memories are, are, are starting to be sort of made into a more going from that temporary storage, you know, when you're holding a phone number in your mind through to when, you know, you can remember it the next day kind of thing. 
And then over a period of longer time, it becomes really set as a potentially lifelong memory stored, mm-hmm. you know, completely securely. So for prevention, we would like to get there before the in that consolidation period, that sort of six hours where it's most easily altered and, and um, that would be consolidation. So once the memory has become an established memory, that's when we are looking at using the period of reconsolidation, where uh, what you try and do with a behavioral task or, or in some way you reactivate the memory and bring it back into sort of activated period. And then while it's in that, you, you make it more uh, malleable again. So you're bringing it back into a sort of state where uh, new information can be added to it um, before it's reconsolidated again. With the reconsolidation work is you would be doing a similar protocol to the one that we would do for uh, preventative uh, interventions, but you would get people to go home, go to sleep for the night, possibly even for another day, wait a day, then come back in. Then you reactivate that memory and then you give them the intervention. And then the memory is reconsolidated with the updated information, which is I don't want to drink or I am not frightened anymore. And the drug, if you give a drug as well, sort of boosts that effect of updating. That was ketamine was used with um, people who were very heavy drinkers. And that was the protocol that was done using ketamine in a hospital. And it had um, really good effects um, at reducing alcohol use subsequent to the ketamine over the placebo. That that was beautiful. It's really that's really fascinating actually like how the how the mind works like this i was reading recently a book called um proust was a neuroscientist uh do you know it is yeah no yeah. I, I found it really fascinating about uh like the one part where they talk about pattern recognition and like it kind of reminded me a little bit of this it was just like when stravinsky's famous what, what's it called again i don't remember the we can just splice it in as if you remembered it on the top of your head. Nobody has to know this is often. The right, the right, of spring, right of spring, right. I remember right yeah, when, when Stravinsky's right of spring was first performed in, in Paris, uh, everybody hated it. Uh, and they were like, uh, they're almost, it almost caused a riot, the, the book says. Like people were like wanting to club each other and stuff. And it was just like something thing never heard before. And people were really upset. But then after, it after years passed by, it actually ended up being in as a tune in Fantasia, I think, uh, in, yeah. in Disney as like a children's uh, movie. And it is like, how did this play causing a riot becoming a Fantasia soundtrack? Kind of like talks about how after a while people started recognizing the patterns in the music. And although they have at the beginning, they'd never heard these patterns before. That's why they made them upset or angry after a while because the mind is so good at picking up patterns, it ended up becoming this like masterpiece type thing that was used. Uh, yeah, this is really fascinating to me how the, the mind works. Uh. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think the key thing is, is that until recently, we weren't really that aware of how plastic the adult brain and mind are. I mean, we often think of children and early periods of development as being highly plastic and malleable. But actually, if you think about how important it is for us to update our knowledge when it's no longer relevant 
And that does mean actually dramatically changing pre-existing representations and associations. And that has to rely on some sort of neuronal substrate, right? So so the adult brain is really, really plastic and, and long-term memories can be radically changed is this idea behind reconsolidation is the main thing. And, and that's really important because, so where Vanessa was talking about prevention, which is preventing the formation of these maladaptive memories that can give rise to psychopathology and bad kind of uh, symptoms like uh, intrusive memories and so on. You don't have that opportunity in many disorders to intervene so close to the cause of the disorder. For example, addictions arise over repeated episodes of reinforcement. A smoker who's been smoking for 20 years or so is going to make this action of of taking a, you know, moving a cigarette to his lips and, and taking a drag you know, about 100,000 times, or actually many more than that, maybe 500 or 100,000 times or a million times. So it's a very, very strongly reinforced set of associations, highly kind of habitual behavior. We're never going to get there at the first point that a person's going to take a drag from a cigarette. So the prevention is, isn't realistic for addictions in the way that it is perhaps for PTSD. So, with the, so there has to be a different way of bringing these old long-term memories online and being able to modify them in some way mm-hmm. um, and that's what this these reconsolidation type interventions actually opens the opportunity for us to do mm-hmm. yeah. uh, with drug with drugs like ketamine but also much milder drugs could potentially have a similar effect the key thing is is that all of these drugs that have putative uh, reconsolidation interfering effects have downstream protein synthesis impairing effects. So it's not necessarily the case that we really have to hit people very hard with a drug like ketamine, drugs that Vanessa and other people in the team are investigating at the moment, drugs like hydrocortisone and propanolol, which are very common drugs, also affect protein synthesis in a way that might be helpful. Propanolol uh, seems to be like a wonder drug. I know four yeah. different people on it, and they're all on it for entirely different reasons. <laughs> someone's on it for a, an essential tremor someone has it yeah, for yeah. a reverse skin disorder and someone else has it of course well, for anxiety which i think is the most common use mm. i mean the way we're thinking about using these drugs is so all of those people i'm sure are using propanolol either intermittently or on a daily basis mm-hmm. whereas the way that memory reconsolidation is conceptualized or memory memory dysfunction and maladaptive memories conceptualized and their reconsolidation is conceptualized means that we wouldn't be thinking of treating a person on a daily basis with the drug. When you make these memories reactivated, the idea would be that you would only need a few treatments with the drug following memory reactivation for it to have a lasting effect. Right. So be in a controlled environment, you'd be taking it, I guess, with your your clinical psychologist. Or, or psychiatrist or, or, or other mental health professional, yeah, um, and and probably in the context of some sort of psychological treatment at the same time, potentially. So in our lab, uh, we actually use... FDA approved bacteria as like many chefs to feed stem cells. 
But despite it being FDA approved, there are obviously a lot of problems with people's perception on bacteria, especially used in implants that you implant to people. Did you have any issues using ketamine or other drugs in your research? And especially because there are some other methods out there that people use. I don't like eye movement desensitization, reprocessing, I think. Yeah. So how do you tackle this? Or did you have any issues with it? I don't know. I think this is definitely one for Vanessa. Um, she has much more hands-on experience with. Uh... <laughs> uh, well, I mean, we are Home Office approved for um, for various uh, drugs that um, are allowed to be used in um, experimentation, and obviously, you have to go through full ethical approval for all of the studies for it. You know, everything from the drugs through to the showing of the films. So there is that. But I, I think what you're probably alluding to more is the sort of overall perception, is it, of, of using drugs rather than, which probably Sanjeev's handed this to me to hang myself because I, I feel quite strongly that um, really we need the right treatment for the right person. And for some people, drugs are going to be the right answer. And to, for other people to make a decision that they mm. shouldn't have drugs is when if it is the right treatment for them other people will be very well helped with behavioral treatments and that will be the right treatment for them but for some people because um, currently a lot of the treatments for behavioral treatments require sort of re-exposure to to whatever it is people are stressed about or on a repetitive nature and for some people they cannot cope with this it's too much so they are quite it's quite a high dropout rates people don't get through the through the treatments and then they're left with no other options but to continue to suffer and for some people this does end up in in suicide it also has a high comorbid with um, physical health problems so that people have can have reduced life expectancy um, it can lead to people not wanting to leave their houses so if there are options out there that you know with one or two three doses of a very safe drug that's taken regularly for in hydrocortisone it's you know, just for arthritis, people take millions of tablets around the, and as you say, for pranolol. And, and if it's a short, a short course, people aren't going to be taking these for the rest of their lives. I mean, even even with ketamine under the right, you know, it's used in anesthesia very, very successfully. So under the right conditions with, you know, obviously trained personnel, there is, compared to the risk of not mm. treating people, it would be wrong not to, uh, to yeah. try to help. Yeah, so it's really interesting how, how just how effective combining these drugs with some training or, or therapy is. But I was wondering, so obviously a, a lot of people associate when it comes to drugs like this or using that as a therapy is maybe a lot of the LSD experiments of the past and especially how the, the, the creator of LSD, what is his name, Albert Hoffman? Is it Albert yeah. Hoffman still? Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, right. it is. How he thought it was like the future of clinical mental health and how it's going to be used to treat for anything. And I was wondering, you know, how harmful are these past perceptions of maybe how out of hand these LSD experiments went to, is to your current work? I think there is always going to be a, a group of people who are very highly opposed to the therapeutic use of drugs that have addictive potential or abuse potential. At, at least in this country, all we can do is to slowly try and work with our colleagues and with patients to to destigmatize these drugs and to improve perceptions around them 
and particularly to develop the kinds of treatments that we're working on, which don't involve, you know, long-term use of medications. I think that will go a long way to improving the image of some of these drugs that have historically um, created sensational headlines. I also think that sometimes people don't realise that um, behavioural treatments um, certainly have their place, but they're not always without their um, not only their limitations, but they can have risks for some people too. And I think that it's it's important whether it's a drug or whether it's a behavioural treatment that it's appropriately researched and appropriately delivered. And then hopefully we're going to be having better outcomes for everybody, what whichever route they need. Yeah. So I actually started uh, my undergrad as a psychology student before I changed over to molecular biology. Uh, and one thing that mildly put me off psychology was that in my first year all of my professors were just in despair about the reproducibility crisis it seemed to be that every lecture the reproducibility crisis would be brought up and so how much does that affect you do you do you think about that when you're because obviously ptsd has a rich long history in in the field so yeah how, how do you take that into account or do you think about it yeah, we think about it all the time. I think that that's uh, uh, definitely an area of despair for Vanessa. So uh, she can probably <laughs> talk about how we try and avoid difficulties with replication. Yes, I mean, you obviously have to make sure that you can show your workings. And also, I think, don't know if it's the same in your, probably not, but we are starting to go through to this registering all of our work before we do it. Um, so that you can show that you're following what you said you would do. It also means that other people can then replicate, try and replicate the work um, that you've done more easily because you're, you know, you know, they know what you're, you were doing. It also means that hopefully we're going to have more studies published that don't come up with the answers that that they had expected, so that people are able to not go down the same path as somebody else, and. I think we'll have a more balanced reporting, reporting of things that haven't worked, because that actually often is as informative as things that have worked. Definitely. I was wondering if we could ask you something, what's the phrase, like a little left field? It's not exactly your field, but it's something that when we, we put out what's it called, an appeal for questions. And we got the most questions on this, but it's not your field. So feel free to entirely reject the question. But a lot of people are really interested in sort of transgenerational memory or like inherited trauma in people. If you're looking, if, a, if the first line of um, sort of treatment to trauma is to treat immediately after the traumatic event or to be able to reconsolidate that memory, how do you even work with it with this trauma is at a molecular level where or if it's inherited epigenetically? Vanessa would... <laughs> So you mean sort of like you mean like culture? You mean cult cult cultural yeah, memory? Yeah. Are you sorry? Um, so I know that like one of the prominent papers is on inherited trauma in Jewish populations of descendants of the Holocaust. I think that's more of an epigenetic question rather than a cultural one. That's right. Fair. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Over to you, Vanessa. <laughs> um well, there are, I mean, recently, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Sanji, but there are papers that suggest that you can, you actually can inherit epigenetic um, changes. So I suppose if it works in a negative way, 
one might hope that it would work in a positive way. And if you have changed the, at the epigenetic level in a positive way, then that would hopefully break that generational link to the subsequent generation. Um, there are certainly some drugs that we've explored in the past for anxiety that work at the epigenetic level. You know, one would hope that that would, would break the cycle. Mm. It's, it wouldn't be just, it's not just an individual thing though there, is it? It's a whole culture that has a memory. So you would have social memory and social cues um, mm. around you. So um, yeah, I, whether or not just treating one individual in that community could break a whole Mm. cultural dynamic is i mean that's definitely way <laughs> out of my field and at least um, at, at least in humans i mean you don't epigenetically transfer a memory you would inherit a vulnerability to depression or maybe ptsd or addiction and so on if your parents for example or grandparents had experienced um, horrific trauma although there are some really interesting studies that suggest that just if the parent is living in a very stressful situation that actually this can alter the behavior of the mm. child much mm -hmm. later on so there are still there are still things that yeah, we yeah. just still don't really quite understand yet at, even at the sort of mm. more genetic um, level which again as i said is yeah <laughs> out, of, out of my level but yeah <laughs> From, no, from uh, pontificating yeah, thank you, on Thank you so much everything. for having me go. That was a really interesting answer. I had no <laughs> idea that there'd be, there'd be drugs that would work at an epigenetic level. I'd never considered that. Yes. Um, well, uh, histone, dis oh gosh, deacetylase inhibitors, which that's not quite right, but um, which um, change the way the chromatid is uh, kept open longer so that the uh, effect of any treatment that you're doing can uh, have more of an effect on learning so and that can then create epigenetic uh, changes yeah i feel like especially with uh, transgener well not exactly epigenetics in this case because we talked a little bit about transgenerational memory and transgenerational trauma because of cultural things which we briefly mentioned or for example internalized oppression or um, institutionalized racism that can cause some sort of trauma in, in, in people. I, I was wondering, how can we manage? You say there is different drug treatments or behavioral treatments which can be used to tackle specific, you know, events that might have, uh, you know, caused trauma in a person. But what if this person has to then go back to a society which is generally quite a traumatic experience for them and kind of like it lives in a cycle where they constantly experience some sort of trauma? I suppose that's a multifaceted requirement isn't it you have to look at you'd have to look at it at a societal level you'd have to probably support those individuals with some form of behavioral or even just counseling level even if it's not a sort of clinical psychiatric um, approach you you people those kinds of people would need longer term support to to, to adjust but hopefully you would be able to give them a sort of a, a better a more solid base if they're not also dealing with the symptoms of a, of the specific trauma to add to the ongoing burden, and that's one of one of the the, the benefits of adding a, a psychopharmacological intervention to a behavioural treatment is that it, it's hoped that by by doing that you're you're reducing the chance of a, a spontaneous recovery of these um, problems, and that is one of the real problems with the the, the behavioural approach so far is that generally it helps around 50, 50 55% of people, which is good um, 
in terms of psychological help. But of those people, half at least will will get a spontaneous recover a return of of their problems. Whereas we're hoping that by actually altering the memory itself, that will be much less likely. So hopefully that any treatment they need will be more just to do with maintaining good general mental health, which would be the case for anyone living in that kind of No, it, is, it was more situation. of a general question. It was just like, <laughs> this is the part of the podcast where we go a little bit more philosophical. Yeah. <laughs> we go nuts. <laughs> But but I, but I think it is, it, I mean, in terms of what we purport to be able to do with these technologies, it's actually very limited. I mean, we're not curing poverty. We're not curing people's circumstances around um, abusive environments and so on. It does depend on all of those things being stable, you know, so we would hope that these these kinds of treatments would be available as a kind of after a lot of other kind of scaffolding is in place you know it, it would be it would be silly to expect that um, we could uh, come in and modify people's memories about a, a traumatic event if that trauma was still ongoing um, or if there was a complete lack of support so you know our, our, our kind of approach is one that would fit within a more kind of sy- systemic way of treating people uh, with mental health problems I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you because you often uh, term the phrase that um, it's sort of like a psychopharmacological vaccine against developing this uh, symptoms of PTSD. But as with any vaccine, you know, you're not just vaccinating someone against the flu is not going to cure them of of their um, poverty or of the fact that they're being abused. Or so it's. It is the same thing. Where it's a very specific thing that we are trying to address. But I guess uh, what what is good in using because you mentioned like uh, um, that you're obviously using some like drug interventions and stuff. But what I what I think you can definitely provide what, for example, other behavioral therapies cannot provide is a little bit more of a predictability as to how re- how people respond in long term or more general. Because like a lot of behavioral interventions, the settings in a study can be very different to the settings in like real life scenarios. When I was doing my master's thesis I was actually doing rehabilitation robotics and it had I was actually trying to influence people's self-efficacy or confidence when when um, I was reading a lot of Albert Bandura back then that's my my little my little knowledge about clinical psychology psychology I was pretty much just um, letting them play this game and the robot uh, reading their vital signs and like from their vital signs trying to predict how these people felt if they feel confident the robot would make the exercise ha- uh, harder to, so that they learn quicker if they were they felt quite deflated the robot would make the exercise easier so that they are again more comfortable more uh, yeah confident and then yeah learn i guess better but yeah. like this worked well, but it worked very well in that particular setting I, in the lab long term because it was like such a behavioral study. It didn't really work. But I guess in your case, because you're using these drug interventions, although, as you say, they are limited because of like all these social aspects of it, I think it's still a really good step. It should work the same in the clinical study as it would in real life because it's a chemical compound or a drug. Yeah, I think in clinical psychological research, we always emphasize the importance of going beyond efficacy research to effective, what we call effectiveness research, which is being able to demonstrate the 
effects of a treatment not only in a highly controlled sort of randomized controlled setting in usually in a research setting with a lot of support and so on but also being able to translate that into a typical clinical um, situation so yeah i mean i think it's a really important question about whether whether these kinds of treatments will extend beyond the lab and beyond the highly controlled randomized controlled trial in in patients to standard practice and that's that's an open question but we're pretty far away from asking that question those kinds of questions at the moment because we we still haven't done the clinical trials because we're at the stage of the science where we're still trying to understand the parameters that dictate whether or when the treatment would be effective uh, which is the kind of stuff that well, Vanessa and other um, members of the team are mm. looking at. Mm. Yes, because at the moment we've only given this to people immediately following, I mean, unless it's someone who knows they're likely to experience something like that and carries a hydrocortisone pill in their pocket for the moment they get it. Um, that's not, in most instances, going to be practical. So we do need to sort of, do some um, delayed uh, delivery of, of this to see how far you can push it before it doesn't it doesn't work as a preventative measure. Um, so there has been some anecdotal evidence within uh, clinical settings that those who have been given it rather than those who haven't. But again, there the di- the difficulty there, of course, is it's not in a controlled situation, so you don't know whether there are other factors involved. Um, so it's it's a balancing act between. Right. real life where it's very messy but real and um uh and in the lab where it's very controlled but not real so um trying to get the balance oh. I, have a, I have a bit more of a personal question about something i was curious about which is so obviously for ptsd there's a, a sort of triggering event or a series of smaller events and i was wondering if if the weight of all those events at a at a body level or cell level is the same. So no matter how big and visible this traumatic event is, or whether it's a um, a sort of quieter insult on the mind, whether it interacts with you the same way. Yeah, if if everyone who experiences a trauma experiences it at the same level, if it is the most traumatic, or if it has differences. If you imagine it to be something that attacks self, if if you feel like your being has in some way been attacked or a, a, an assault to yourself rather than it being a sort of random thing and it that seems to be more psychologically mm. harming or harder to recover from 42% of PTSD cases i read recently are because of intimate interpersonal violence you've you've gone along and you're this happy blah 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 and then you something happens that completely sort of almost wipes out you, you up mm. to that point, you've got to reinvent how you view the world, how you incorporate what's happened to you into what you always thought to be true. That does seem to be driving forced problems. Yeah, and and how successfully you can integrate the experience yeah. determines whether you will recover or not. Wow, that's that's oh. very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Gosh, I wish I could ask so many more questions about this, but I think we should probably begin the wrap up, I suppose, right? Yeah. Might I say, Vanessa, you seem like an ideal PhD student. You're like so knowledgeable. You're so knowledgeable about the field. 
Oh, I, don't, I, I talk a good game, as she knows I don't really know anything. No, she, she, uh, she really is um, a nightmare. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're playing a really good game here. We can't bear each other, really. <laughs> no, no, it's true. I mean, yeah, Ness is just amazing. And um, no. so it really does... Oh. Um, no. It does make a life easier for a, a, a supervisor. Well, it's great to have such a good supervisor. So we're both lucky. I'll give you the five. I'll give you the five later. <laughs> you better. <laughs> I won't polish that crown otherwise. Yeah, it sounds like you guys have a really positive, like, uh, supervisor PhD student relationship. Would you say it's like a very mentor, mentor, mentoree relationship, or is it? Yeah. Oh, definitely. It's brilliant. I mean, I, genuinely, I um, chose to do the course that I did my master's at UCL and I chose to do it and I chose my project because of Sanjeev's work. So I, it's just such an honour to be able to. Oh, oh that's very kind. <laughs> and, and I mean, we might have got the a mentor mentee um, bit mixed up. I mean, uh, <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. That's good. No, it's, it's a good yeah. So what's next for your lab? Where do you see the, well, what do you see in the future of the field that you would like to tackle? This is one for the mentor. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead then. <laughs> I know, I think Vanessa's poison. <laughs> um, certainly we would like to do more work with drugs like ketamine but of course uh, ketamine is a very difficult drug to work with as an experimental compound because it's a controlled drug you need a qualified anesthetist to administer it and so on so instead we might be focusing our efforts more on a similar drug uh, or a drug that has similar effects which is nitrous oxide mm. uh, laughing gas uh, which is also a really interesting drug that Vanessa's also done some work on. And I hope at some point we can also do some work with drugs like MDMA and some of the psychedelics. But those are really, really challenging experiments to do for all kinds of practical, legal, ethical reasons. If I was wanting to challenge the team to do something difficult, it would be something along those lines, I think. Yeah, but But sticking with the idea of treating trauma i think yeah. how would uh, psychedelics or mdma be useful for trauma oh well mdma is a really really interesting compound that we don't understand very well so it does a few different things at the psychological level which one of which is it speeds up the rate at which people become less afraid of uh, things that they're frightened of and another thing is that it seems to open up this tendency for plasticity that we were talking about before, which might be a little bit like what happens in reconsolidation. So there was a paper in Nature in 2019 that showed that adult rats once again became susceptible to learning in a way that adolescent or young rats. So it seems to kind of open up this window of plasticity. So and as we were saying before, disorders like PTSD are essentially disorders of learning and memory. So if you can open up those kinds of opportunities for relearning what's dangerous, what's safe and so on, that could be a really interesting way to use that drug. At the moment, it's already been trialed as a treatment for PTSD. But we don't know if it's being used in an optimal way, whether the current paradigm for 
what's called MDMA psychotherapy is the, the optimal way for treating PTSD. So yeah, so there's still some very interesting open questions around how MDMA could be useful for PTSD. A colleague of ours, Michael Bloomfield, was talking about the fact that you could possibly use ketamine as a nasal um, as a nasal spray delivery rather than as an intravenous mm. spray. So if we could find out more about its uh, mechanisms and get the actual dosage timings and all that sort of thing more accurately nailed down, then that would be a way of delivering something that obviously works very well, but in a much, much uh, cool. safer way. Yeah. That's really... So when you have a traumatic experience, you can just have a little nose spray that you can just like... <laughs> So to finish to sh- finish off the podcast, uh, we're gonna play everybody's favorite game called Guess the Impact Factor, and we actually have um, we're gonna it's 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 quite uh, self-explanatory. We're gonna give you uh, titles of journals, and you're gonna have to guess the impact factor. And we have uh, actually a league table, and the leader right now is I believe Emily with uh, it's Emily. Yeah. yeah, our previous guest. But what will be exciting is obviously this is more controlled since you can now compete against each other with the same journals. So really, this is a highlight. I always choke. This kind of, I'm, I'm terrible at competition, but but I'll give it a go. So <laughs> all right. So, so do you want to choose one I'll first? I'll choose one first. So. Uh, First, we have Psychology Today. Everyone's favorite magazine. Everyone's favorite magazine, which actually has an impact factor, similar to The New Scientist, which also has an impact factor, which we didn't know. But Psychology Today has now an impact know. factor. I'm going to say 0.15. All right. Okay, I, I will say 0.5 then. Oh, 0.066. <laughs> I will, I I will give it to you anyways, just because that was a really good the guess. The first one is hard. That was a really good yeah. guess. So one out of, God. well, one out of one. One for Sanjeev. And then, <laughs> sorry, Vanessa, you have a, to catch up a little bit here. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just, this is, this is not, this is not my area of expertise. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll go with a better, well, uh, more well-known one now nature mm-hmm. neuroscience mm-hmm. that's nature neuroscience three three <laughs> I, don't, I don't know i don't know anything about it i don't oh, believe in okay. this oh. so sorry <laughs> i will say um how how close do you have to be sorry again Oh, I feel like it depends on what our mood is. Uh, okay, all right. If you compliment cool. us, it's our... I'll say, I'll say 21. Oh, <gasps> oh no, you'd we'll, get that even on our worst we'll, days. We'll give it to you. That It's 20.071. That, that's that's a really good guess. That's really good. That's really wow. good. That, that, you must look at this every week, like Sanji. I thought it was only out it's of out 10, of five. so I'm not you, doing very well at all. Be... Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Don't worry. You can, see, you can see what preoccupies me. <laughs> I feel like somebody has been practicing in secret, have, has been listening to our podcasts, and we're like, oh, it's coming up, it's coming up. Okay, number, number uh, three out of five. Uh, it's the British Journal of Psychology. Mm. <laughs> number out of air. Um, 
11.25. Um, I will say uh, British Journal of Psychology, not Clinical no, psychology. psychology. Yeah, just Psychology. All right, I will say 3.8. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Have you been practicing? Yeah, it's 3. Po- Are you serious? It's 3.3. <laughs> it? that, that is incredible. I'm still giving okay. it. That's still so exciting. <laughs> Now I know why you don't have any time for anything else. And this is all you're doing all day. Yeah, we'll definitely give that to you as well. That's three out of yeah. three so far. Okay. And if you guess I feel like, the next oh one right, I feel like having a... you oh are God. definitely top of the leaderboard. This is so funny. Yeah. Oh, really? Wow, the, okay. Our, oh, yeah. our top score right now is three out of five. So uh, you okay. already have three out of three. That's crazy. Okay. okay, so the next one is the journal titled Pain. Right. 6.8. The the journal called Pain has an impact factor of 6.09. All right. But but you both get a point because it is plus plus or minus uh, one in this case. It's acceptable. It's acceptable, we we feel. So it's uh, four out of five for Sanjeev and one out of four. four, Sorry, four out of four for Sanjeev and one out of four for Vanessa. And la- la- last one, yeah. Um, the Canadian yeah. Journal of Chemical Engineering. So that's a little bit more obscure. Oh, God. A little curveball. It's a little bit of a curveball. Mm. 1.85. Canadian Journal of Chemical yes, Engineering. It's Canadian Journal of Chemical Engineering. Okay. I will say 1.2. 1.687. Incredible. Oh. <gasps> oh my goodness. I've never been I, That's impressive. I will give you that point as well. You have five out of five. And Vanessa, two out of five. <laughs> Top of the leaderboard. Absolutely s- smashed yeah. the challenge. Incredible. <laughs> that's the first time I've won anything in my life. <laughs> And you said you choked in competitions, but... (laughs) (laughs) Well, now we know that was a lie. (laughs) No. Amazing. Um, No. Yeah, that's it from us. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. Uh, We had a really good time interviewing you and you were great guests. The music for this podcast was provided by Jaron Felaidi. You can find more of his work at operatet.com. That's O-P-P-R-E-T-T-E-T. You can find us on our on Instagram at that Schofield girl and still live on Greece. And with that, I would like to thank you so much for listening and I hope you're staying safe and having a wonderful day.